Blog Talk Radio. everyone and welcome to the 483rd edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host Daniel Feuerstein. I'll give you American perspective of our clubs, leagues, players, national team and other fabulous moments. You can get your daily reading in, from me and other writers over at onceametro.com and the rest of the SB Nation family of soccer websites. Come on in. The chat room is open. Talk amongst yourselves if you like. If you have a question for me, I'll try to answer it to the best of my abilities. As we move on and move forward, six to seven matches remaining in this makeshift schedule of the coronavirus 2020 MLS season. As we uh, get ready to uh, finish up to where we will be at before the playoffs begin. And, you know... Let me just say this. I know we have not seen um, any form of international games being played this week because of the whole pandemic, because of the whole coronavirus. We all know UEFA Nations League is going on. South American World Cup qualifying is going on. And we know we have some players who play for uh, South American national teams that are now playing uh, World Cup qualifiers, like for uh, Christian Casares Jr. for Venezuela. Uh, also, we have uh, Kaku for Paraguay and uh, a couple of others as well. It, it's been really, really exciting to finally seeing some World Cup qualifying uh, getting underway. And, of course, uh, hopefully uh, European World Cup qualifying, they'll have their draw, which I understand it might be sometime this coming November. When that happens, hopefully it will be broadcast on YouTube. <coughs> Excuse me, YouTube Live. And hopefully, um, you know, we can see uh, which nations will be in the same qualifying groups or which qualifying groups they'll be facing off against. So, you know, this whole pandemic has been very difficult. It really has been tough to get international competition going, whether it be club side, club sides or um, international sides. And, you know, we're still waiting for the uh, CONCACAF Champions League, uh, for this current edition to resume, once again, we still need LAFC uh, to play in their first leg of the quarterfinals of the Champions League, and then we can get to the uh, second leg of the quarterfinals. So we just have to wait for all these things to finally calm down, to finally, you know, be done with and then we can just move on move forward and we can just enjoy the rest of the time because it's just been very very hard to get some of these games underway Uh, we've seen these matches the first round has been pushed back uh, for CONCACAF and once again there are parts of uh, the, the, the Central America and the Caribbean zones um, where we are not seeing first-round qualifying matches getting underway. 
It's been tough, very, very tough. So we just have to show some patience. We just have to show some uh, backbone when we talk about World Cup qualifying moving on here. And hopefully, hopefully we can get this whole situation uh, taken care of, one, two, three, and that we can hopefully get to the point of we don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. We don't have to worry about where and when you can um, schedule games because now we can get this whole thing underway. So that's the one thing. But the one thing I want to say is, is this. And, you know, it has to be said that this idea that came about and the idea that I'm talking about is this new league or shall we say a joint venture from the Maryland Soccer Association and the Cosmopolitan Association Soccer League to see these amateur state leagues to come together to form the Northeastern Soccer League has been a miracle within itself. Because now it looks like you have these clubs that are in normal leagues like, you know, the NPSL, maybe even USL League Two, that they can join or have their amateur division uh, leagues joining in into the semi-pro leagues, and off they go. Off they go to now play games that are just not just for Open Cup qualifying, but they can just go from state to state within the region. Now they can just have regular season games, it looks like. And, of course, we'll try and get more information about that as the time, as days move on. But, you know, to see what's been happening and to see how all of this has come together, it has been, I believe, a a fantastic display of professional soccer uh, or acting as a professional soccer, even though it is only the semi-professionals that are joining in. Um, It means more games, it looks like it means more opportunities for players and more competition than the typical competition you face every single year within your own um, state divisions. And I just think that's fantastic. Now, obviously, there will still be Open Cup qualifying for these teams in their respective states. But once, you know, in their respective regions, like regions one, two, three, and four. But to have this whole Northeastern Soccer League uh, becoming a huge thing, I think it's wonderful. I, I think it's really uh, a positive, a positive. When you have an, an idea like this to move forward, you know, there is so much room for improvement for our game. And once again, I think that this is where the typical arguments kind of get you know, lost in the shuffle when it comes to something like this. 
because we all know what the typical arguments are. Single table, pro-rel. What about the actual situation that other clubs or you know, clubs that are affiliated with U.S. soccer, what situations are they under? What, can, what gives them the idea or the opportunity to improve their status? Because it's not just that. I still feel that while we are improving in some aspects of this game in this country, we're still lacking in other aspects as well. And still, I am not poo-pooing the solid arguments that are being made. The top arguments that will always be out there. You can't do that. You cannot ignore it. But what you can do is add on to it. What are some of the issues that we're facing? What are some of the issues that we are going to be discussing? What are some of the issues that continues to plague this sport in this country? Size will always be one of them. When you live in the Northeast, where I am, I think that because, yes, it is the oldest part of the, of the nation, the oldest original states, the original 13 colonies, when you're going from New Hampshire all the way down to Georgia, when you add to Florida, to me, I feel like we have it – I wouldn't say it's easier, but I would make it the term to be it's a little more simpler because of – how far away the states are. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, even Rhode Island, Delaware, Maryland. I mean, you can definitely say that between with Delaware and Rhode Island being the two smallest states on the mainland, to just go up and down, it has been an absolute joy, you know, to not worry too much about uh, travel and putting a strain on the car. But still, though, we have to wonder. We have to wonder. We have to see. And we also have to make sure that not just the players that are currently playing, but the players that are absolutely getting the necessary the necessary amount of minutes possible so they can move up on their own and the competition must be better. That's how I feel about this subject. Ladies and gentlemen, I got a great show for you tonight. Later on we'll have on Chris Webb, formerly of United Mania Podcast to Talk about, of course, the ending of the Ben Olsa era at DC United. Later on, of course, Michael Lander in a recording, um, talking about the Matricu loan uh, from Blue City Radio. But joining me right now, I'm very honored and I'm very privileged to have this man return to this show. This man who has been one of the top managers in Major League Soccer. He's also the sporting director 
of Sporting Kansas City as well. The one and only Peter Vermees joins me as we continue to celebrate on this show 25 years of Major League Soccer. Peter Vermees, one of those players that started in this league in 1996 and has become uh, a manager, decorated player, a decorated uh, head manager of the club that he has been uh, with for the many, many years that he has played Peter, thank you for your time. I really appreciate your time to come on the back on the show. Good evening. I hope you and your family are doing well during this whole pandemic. All good. Great to be on the show. Hope you guys are well. Thank you very much. So, you know, the World Cup is here in the United States in 1994. Um, obviously, you were part of the national team through uh, the Olympic qualifiers, going to the Olympics. Uh, was not a part of that national team, but still, though, when you're watching the greatest soccer tournament in the history of the world in your own backyard, uh, of course, at Giant Stadium, the famous Giant Stadium that had the New York Cosmos um, in the backyard, what was that like for you uh, that you know, solidified your love for this sport? Well, honestly, it, it, it was probably twofold at the time. Um, so I played in 90, the 90 World Cup in Italy, and now the World Cup was coming in 94. Um, I, I got released from the team about a month, two months before the World Cup began, six weeks before the World Cup began in 94. Um, I was extremely excited, obviously, about the, the World Cup being in the United States for so many reasons. Um, at the same time, I was obviously disappointed that I wasn't, you know, able to play in the World Cup. But yeah, um, I was I was very excited that I was here. I thought that um, at the time I was I also sat on the board of directors for U.S. Soccer, and so I was privy to a lot of stuff that was coming down the pike. Um, at the time, there was a new professional league that was going to be coming to the United States at that moment. Um, there were about five different organizations that were vying for division one status, um, in the United States. And one of them obviously was, uh, this idea behind MLS. And, uh, so I was actually a part of that vote and, you know, world cup 94 helped that immensely because it was sort of that, you know, that impetus that got the, the fire started in this country. I really believe that. Um, and so here we sit, you know, 25 years later. Um, with an incredible league, it's really 26, but who's counting? Hmm. Exactly. Uh, core of a century, though, that's not bad. Uh, you get drafted by this uh, club, of course, at the time, the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars, now the New York Red Bulls, of course. Um, what was that like to be teammates with both Tony Miola and Tab Ramos when this, when this whole season began in its inaugural campaign? Well, look, there's there's no doubt in my mind that there was a lot of uh, finagling back then to make sure that certain players were put into certain areas uh, of the country and certain uh, teams and so on. So, obviously, I played with Fab and, and, and uh, uh, Tony um, on the national team for a number of years. Uh, Tab and I played together in Spain. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was – it was great because we have we even spent, you know, some time playing in our youth days together as well. So, uh, yeah, it was tremendous being able to play with guys that I knew, you know, for the majority of my 
my career. Um, and you know, we're all from that area and we all were had you a real, shocked? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I just going to say that we all had a real, I apologize. Um, Go ahead. Connection. No, that's okay. We had mm-hmm. a real connection to, to, to the area. And so I think, uh, you know, I always said when, when I got traded from uh, New York to Colorado, um, it was like they, it was like as if I had the, the, the logo, you know, tattooed on my heart and they took it off. But, you know, such as, such as professional sports and probably at the end of the day, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was all the right moves to, to get me where I'm at today. So uh, I understand how that stuff happens. No, I, I absolutely. Obviously, it must have been a real tough thing. Just to stick with your Metro Stars career, I know it was only one year, unfortunately. But um, when you received the captain's armband uh, for that first year, were you a little shocked that you got it, or did you feel uh, you were ready to make that move to uh, lead the team? Because obviously, you—I mean, not saying you're a pushover, but you know, there's Tab, there's Tony, there's Roberto Donadoni. Um, when you received that captain's armband, how important did you feel about that? Well, I always think the captain of any team is an, is an important, uh, you know, position, honor to carry, but shocked, not at all. Um, I've, I've, I think every team, and look, I don't think that what makes you a captain is a captain's armband. I think it's uh, the way you conduct yourself, the way you lead, you know, whether it's uh, on the field, off the field, um, and, and again, you don't need a captain's armband to do that. So, uh, whether I would have been wearing that or not, I still would have been the same guy. And, um, it was just that, you know, those guys recognized me as, as, uh, as being that guy. And, um, but no, not surprised. Cause I had been that for, you know, many other teams that I played for over the years. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, you know, players of today, uh, they never thought about that shootout that began in MLS. They're like, I know MLS had a Facebook uh, video uh, about the players of today. Like, they actually had this. Um, and we can't forget the heroics you had against DC United in the first leg at Giant Stadium in the pouring rain. Of course, uh, you were hobbled. You uh, you told your manager, listen. Let me take it. I'm going to bury it. And then you did it. What was that feeling like? Yeah, look, uh, it was obviously a different time, but I grew up with, you know, the NASL where they had shootouts as well. So I remember what that was like. Now, I know that wasn't the uh, the norm for the rest of the world and games would end in ties. But in, in some respects, you know, we were trying to Americanize, you know, MLS a little bit. And the time they felt that that was necessary. Um, I, I actually enjoyed the shootout. I really did. Um, I, I thought it was it was it was pretty entertaining for the fans, but I think as a player, I actually loved it. Um, I thought it was great. Uh, you know, look at the end, it was uh, it was something that eventually went away because you know we wanted to. I think MLS and rightfully so wanted to uh, legitimize the sport um, with all the rest of the professional leagues around the world, which makes a lot of sense. But I thought at the time it was actually a really good. A really good thing to do, and I think it kept the fans engaged. And um, yeah, that was uh, that was a, a pretty pretty interesting night. There was a lot of lot lot went on that night in and around that that situation. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And uh, you know that that whole rivalry doesn't get started without that little uh, tiff between uh, you guys in DC. And you know what was that like? Obviously, John Harks originally from. 
uh, Carney as well uh, against uh, you, Tab and Tony, and of course Echeverry and Diaz Arce and Moreno. What was that like to start off the first rivalry of the league? Yeah, those guys. Listen, they had an excellent team. They really did. Um, it's 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 pretty amazing because you know we win that game, we go you know back to their place, and we have two games. Uh, you know, we we can we can take this uh, no problem. And it's it's unfortunate because playing in those games, what what tends to happen is that it's like one or two plays here or there that, you know, change and have the major outcome and major impact on the outcome of the game. And, and uh, we had a couple of like clear cut opportunities, you know, five, six yards out from goal and just completely missed the goal. And those came back to haunt us at the end, but it was, it was a battle. It was definitely a battle between both clubs. Um, but I also think it was really, really good for the league. Um you know, New York was was trying to get itself, you know, in, into the, you know, into the in the environment of being a New York franchise, and um, DC had a, a great team, and Echeverry was good. But I always say that you know Jaime Moreno was incredible. He was an incredible player for that franchise, and I think he was a difference maker from from my perspective all the years. As much as as much as Echeverry was a good number ten, Jaime could could do it all. He was a tremendous player. Yeah, he was. Uh, always burned you every opportunity he had, uh, whether it be free kicks or he destroyed you while he dribbled down the pitch against you. That's for sure. Um, and you talked about being with the Rapids for at least three seasons, but you know, you've know you permanently been a part of um, sporting Kansas City, of course, originally Kansas City Wizards, uh, for these last remaining many, many years since the 2000 season. Um, winning that championship in 2000, you were with Tony, of course, who was the goalkeeper, and you were the defender. What was it like to not just be a player for this team, but now, of course, managing this team and being a player that has managed and uh, playing for championships for this franchise that was run by the Hunt family? Yeah, um, so in... In 2000, that's right, the Hunt family owned the team. Um, I actually get traded from New York to Colorado, and in and that was uh, the start of the 97 season. In the 96 season, which was the inaugural season, Colorado was the last place team in the league, and I was like, I was like, I can't believe I'm getting traded to the last place team in the league. Well, we wind up. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going. I'm skipping over here. I'm sorry. So 90, it's now 90, okay. 99. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I'm. I'm I'm, I'm, man, I'm, I'm getting dated here. 90, so 99 season finishes in Colorado and uh, Kansas City Wizards were the last place team in Major League Soccer in 99. So I, get traded, so I got traded from in 96 to 97 to Colorado, last place team in the league. We went to the final that year. And then in 99, I get traded from Colorado to Kansas City, last place team in the league, and we go to the final. And we won the Supporter Shield that year as well. So we, had, we won the double that year. We won the Supporter Shield and the and the MLS cup. And, you know, it was one thing I always said when I came into major league soccer, I said, you know, I, I, I want to be able to win um, an MLS cup because I think that um, anytime that you're an athlete, um, you know, if you're playing baseball, basketball, football, hockey, and soccer, you want to win the cup. You got to, you got to win it one time. You want to win the Super Bowl. And, and there's been a lot of great players that have never, never won the Super Bowl. I mean, you think about the Buffalo Bills and 
the team that went four times and never won it. I mean, that, that's, that is uh that is something that's, it's hard to swallow. It's hard to, uh, you know, you're always going to be remembered that way. So it was really important for me to win. But then, um, as I told you, you know, I, I felt when I got traded from New York to Colorado that, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the logo was, you know, ripped from my heart. And when I came to Kansas city, um, Bob Gansler was the coach. He's the one who brought me in. I played for him in the World Cup as well um, in 1990. So we had a relationship. Tony was there. Um, uh, Chris Henderson was there. A bunch of guys that I had already played with in the past. And we had sort of, in a way, we had a um, a team that was a bunch of castaways, if you will, a bunch of, you know, misfit toys. Guys, some, you know, somewhere or another, somebody didn't want us. And we all were brought together by Bob. Bob did a great job of assembling a team. And you know, and we won and we cared and uh, we were an incredibly defensive uh, team that was tremendous. We could score one goal and we could ride out. We could score the first goal in the first minute and ride out the other 89 minutes and, and have a shutout. And so um, it was, a, it was a great, it was a great team. I, I, I really love the city. And then obviously some years later and the ownership group comes in, buys the team and um, they brought me back into the fold and, you know, I've been here ever since, and it's been a tremendous ride. And you know, it's 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 incredible because when you win a championship as a player, and then you win as the coach, it's completely different. As a player, as much as you're on the team, it's a team sport. You, you know, it's 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 still it, there's still a lot of individual accomplishment there. You did it with your team, and you're you're on the same team, but you have to be worried about yourself when you're a manager it's so much more satisfying I believe because you have to get all these pieces to come together. Everybody has to be committed. They have to sacrifice for the, for the common goal and to be able to be the person that, you know, helps orchestrate that is incredible satisfaction. So having the ability to do the same thing um, in two different positions at the same club has been incredibly rewarding. I bet it really has. I mean, you know, you've managed an MLS Cup championship, three Open Cup titles uh, over, you know, against some very, very difficult teams in the league, and you've come out smelling like a rose. You've done so many wonderful things. And then you get honored um, by the National Soccer Hall of Fame back in 2013. You were inducted into the Hall of Fame. What does that mean for you to be recognized and rewarded, not just for your playing career, but for your managing career as well? Yeah, you know, um, I've been asked this question before, and and, and, uh, by any means, I don't want to come off – I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but I always say say this up front. Um, It's an incredibly humbling honor to be, you know, a part of the Hall of Fame of soccer for sure. But I also think that, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you do. Um, uh, if you're laying bricks, if you, you're an accountant, you know, wh- whatever that job is that you do, or you're a professional athlete at the end, you, you want to, you want to make sure that you've, you know, the idea is that you would like to make sure that you had an impact in a positive way. You contributed in a positive way. And when I retired from the game, um, and then obviously at that point I was already coaching for a number of years, 
Um, you, I, I never really needed anyone to come to me and, and, and say to me, Hey, you know what? You had a good playing career. I felt good about my career. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, wasn't Michael Jordan-esque, obviously. I didn't win six championships and NBA wasn't on that kind of world, but I felt good about my, my career. I achieved kind of the things that I wanted to. Um, and I also played till I was 36, which a lot, a lot of guys don't do. Um, and I was able to leave the country, play in three different countries overseas, Hungary, Holland, and Spain. I went to the World Cup. I went to the Olympics. And then, obviously, I played in my own country for Major League Soccer, a new league that was starting, and was able to win there. So I, I, felt, I felt like I, I, I accomplished something. But it, it's totally different when you get inducted into the Hall of Fame. It's, uh, it's a very um, unique group of people, um, you know, the elite of the elite. Uh, I, like I said, it's very humbling. Um, but I think one of the things that it does allow you to do is it allows you in that moment to thank all the people that helped you along the way. Because in, 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 in sports, um, you never can do it on your own. You, you, always, you always have mentors, people that, you know, touch you in certain ways along the way that allow you to be, um, you know, successful. And so I, I think that's the biggest thing that that day was for me. It gave me a chance to thank all those people that, you know, helped me along the way and, and, and uh, you know, continue to be a part of uh, my life, um, part of soccer and also outside of soccer. So, so very, very fortunate in, in that regard. And I thank you for your time, and I always thank you for coming on the show. You are one of the best guys out there uh, for this game. Peter, congratulations again for being such a great manager, and uh, just keep on doing what you're doing. Uh, you'll be Mr. Sporting Kansas City for life. That's, that's how I envision you. Uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, please have a good evening. Please, be stay, please stay safe as well as your family through this pandemic, and good luck in the next uh, group of matches. Really appreciate it. Okay, always good to be on the show. Have a good night. Thank you. Have a good night. Head coach and sporting director, Peter Vermees of Sporting Kansas City. Uh, this man has done a lot of things for the game as a player and as a manager and now a sporting director, of course. Um, can't wait to see what's going to happen when can Sporting Kansas City and St. Louis City get underway uh, when in St. Louis is time to be in starting in Major League Soccer uh, in recorded interview, I have on Mr. Michael Anderer from Blue City Radio talking about the loan deal as New York City FC sends uh, Alexandru Matricu to a Saudi club, Al-Ali. Very interesting stuff. Here is that recorded interview right now. Daniel Feuerstein, welcome back to the American Soccer Show as we talk about anything and everything in this game in the United States. And a strange situation has popped up uh, out of the blue, in my opinion, New York City FC has decided to allow Alexandru Matricha to uh, go on loan all the way to the Middle East with the Saudi Arabia club. And to talk about that, of course, my good friend Michael Anderer from Blue City Radio. Michael, welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. So. Uh, 
That's weird. I, I mean, I find it strange that you have a guy who has done well for New York City FC, and then out of nowhere, a Saudi Arabian club comes just completely out of the blue, and uh, all of a sudden there's a loan deal that just popped up. Well, I think the, the important part is, let's go back to uh, the history of the player, because I think that does, it is relevant to the story. Uh, Matriza got signed uh, last year. He was a, a very expensive signing. The team played, paid uh, $8.5 million for, uh, for his rights. Uh, it was the second highest transfer for him in his history when he came in. And uh, there was a lot of pressure on him to, uh, before. Uh, he... He was good last year, but we all know with these international players coming to MLS, there's a transition period, and um, and he he just like everyone else had to go through that transition period. Not everyone can be Zlatan Ibrahimovic, so he suffered through that transition period last year, and then NYCFC had the uh, the, the shakeup with their coaching uh, uh, coaching staff in um, in the off season. Ronnie Dyla comes into uh, NYCFC in January, and uh, unfortunately, Dyla is not a fan of this of, of the player. Uh, Matriza is a is a good quality attacking player, but he's a little lapsed when it comes to, to, to defense. And Dyla wanted to try to implement a high press system, and uh, the player wasn't uh, you know wasn't wasn't adapting to it. So I think that's the that's where you have to start. Um, he's, a, he's a quality player. He's shown it in the last few games that he can definitely do it. But uh, unfortunately, he, he wasn't a right fit, and he wasn't getting a lot of minutes for, uh, for the club, at least in 2020. Yeah, at least in 2020. So now he is currently uh, with Romania uh, in the European uh, champion, uh, excuse me, the Nations League. Uh, UEFA Nations League with Romania right now. And then apparently once... Uh, his time with Romania is done. He'll be going to his new club. Where is he, and which club is he with in Saudi Arabia right now? He's with, uh, well, he's, so he's kind of with Romania, like you said. They actually just lost uh, their game, uh, I believe it was uh, earlier today, uh, to Iceland, 2-1. And he played, uh, he played about a half. Um, he's going to a club, Al-Ali, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's, Here's the weird thing, and again, I have to uh, give credit to uh, Sam Stachel from The Athletic, because he wrote the uh, probably the best article about this. Uh, Sam, Sam was given uh, access to David Lee, who um, has done some media availability, um, but not not a lot. And uh, I, I don't know why, especially in the wake of this type of event, that they would rather do an, ex- an exclusive than um, have him available to, uh, to, uh, to other media. But... Here's where we are today. Uh, Matriz's wife is pregnant. Um, during the uh, MLS's back tournament, uh, Matriz was just like all the other players was in the was in the bubble, and I think that had a lot to do with the wife's decision. She basically decided to go back to Romania. Um, COVID restrictions uh, wouldn't allow any of her family, a mix of COVID and then uh, you know visas. Uh, wouldn't allow any of her family to come over and support her. She was basically in New York City all alone. Uh, her husband was down playing in, in Florida in the bubble. So they made the decision to, to go to go back. And then I guess uh, Matriza himself 
like I mentioned earlier, wasn't getting a lot of playing time, was probably not in the best of best of mood, and basically approached NYCFC and said, look, you know, I want to be with my wife. She's due in uh, November, and uh, I, can't, I can't go back and forth because every time I leave to go see her, I'm going to be subject to a 14-day quarantine, so I'm not going to be able to play. So he basically went to the club and said, you know, find, find me a way out because I, I need to be close to my family. And that's ultimately what it, what it comes down to. Um, that's, that's the part that I don't think many people can argue with. I think everyone's going to say, you know, look, he, he needs to be with his family. It's his first child, and it's an important thing to do. So the sacrifices uh, sometimes have to be made. Where it does get interesting is how NYCFC handles it, and that's pretty much par for the course. Um, NYCFC just has this history of, I don't want to call it a gaffe, because at this point it's not a gaffe, it's, it's, it's their deliberate method of, of handling these, uh, these situations. But they announced uh, to the media and to, uh, to the fan base that on Tuesday he was going to be made available to uh, the Romanian uh, national team. They referenced uh, personal, uh, personal reasons for why he was being allowed to, to leave, despite the fact that NYCFC seriously is in need of, of attacking depth because of uh, injuries to their number 10 in Maxi Morales and their number 9 in Hebert. So uh, Matriza had stepped up and done really well in two, uh, in two games as the, as the fill-in num- number 10. And then uh, he, he's... You know, he's announced to where he's going, and I think that's when you contacted me to say, hey, uh, let's, let's get on the line and talk about this, because this guy's uh, going on loan. And that was the part that is really frustrating, is that NYCFC could have been forthcoming right from the get-go and just said, here's the situation. The fact that they made their head coach get on a call with media and say, nothing is finalized, uh, he's still a New York City player, Basically, 24 hours before, or let's call it 48 hours before, they made the announcement that he was officially signed. That's uh, that's upsetting because that's one of those things where, look, if he, no one's going to argue that he should be with his family. What they are going to argue is, is why the, the team allows these rumors to, to fester for for 24 hours before they make a statement. And in some cases, rumors have festered for even longer with other players. You know, I understand, you know, people love this club, and I understand people want to see the club flourish, and they want to see them do well, uh, especially, you know, the crowded sports scene that you know and I know very well in this town when it comes to, you know, two Major League Baseball teams, two NFL teams, two NBA teams, three hockey teams. Yes, the Devils do count, because I know they're in New Jersey, but they still count. They're still part of the whole situation. Um, and, of course, you have the Red Bulls and uh, New York City FC. And I guess the question is that has to be asked, why does NYCFC continue to act like they don't want to inform people of things that are, you know, that, that are going to happen, whether it's, you know, bad for the club? And, you know, you can go all the way back to um, the day where they found out they were forced out of Yankee Stadium because the Yankees had to use a day off to... Uh, make up a rain delay baseball game. Of course, you know they are partially 20% owned by the Yankees, and they were forced to go to uh, outside of Hartford, Connecticut, to go play in uh, Rentschler Field at the University of Yukon. Yeah, well, no, I mean the the biggest and most glaring example of this, and the one that the, the point, the, the story that fans go back to 
was the signing of Frank Lampard. Because, you know, here, here's a marquee signing. He was supposed to be your, your second TP, uh, you know, obviously second to WB coming in. And all of a sudden, you know, as, right when he's supposed to report to training camp, it gets announced, oh, he's going to stay with Manchester City a little bit longer. And then a little bit longer, no, but he's going to be there before the start of the season. And then, and then all of a sudden it, it comes out uh, when he when it's finally announced that he's going to be coming in June. It was finally announced that he never actually had a, an MLS contract. That he had signed the contract with CFG in Man City, but never extended that contract over to MLS, and that, that paperwork still had to be finalized. So it's um, it, it's a bad history. Let Let's switch to the positive of of this story with uh, Matriza. The positive is. Look, the player's going to be with um, Al Ali in, in Saudi Arabia through January 2022. So he's basically gone for about 13 months. And uh, the club in uh, Saudi Arabia has the option to buy. The, uh, the positive is that means that it frees up a DP slot. So next year, look, I don't expect uh, NYCFC to do anything major, uh, you know, now. But next year, at least they'll have the opportunity to sign two DP, two DP players because their other DP, their young DP, uh, Paraguayan Jesus Medina, his contract is also structured to where he will be a TAM player in 2021. So you'll have uh, Maxi Morales, uh, who's yes, who's also injured and aging as a DP, but then you'll also have the ability to sign two new players uh, next year. So let's hope that um, as soccer returns to more normal schedule, with, uh, with the passing of, uh, of COVID and these restrictions that, uh, that we start to see, uh, you know, NYCFC bolster their, their lineup and maybe get some, some marquee players that we know the team needs to survive in the, uh, in the media landscape of uh, New York City. You know, I got to say, um, they got that player who was a young, young teenager in uh, Hack, who's currently on loan with Hartford Athletic of USL Championship. Um, what positives do they see from this kid uh, so far who's having a good year with Hartford in the USL Championship League? I, that's, a t- that's a tough one because they have a lot of players that are, well, they have Joe Scally, who's, uh, who's the uh, 17-year-old who's going to be going over to, uh, to Mönchengladbach in, um, in uh, Bundesliga. He's going to leave when he turns 18. They have uh, Tavon Gray, who's an academy player, center back, uh, prospect, and they had Hack. Uh, a lot of people were surprised that they uh, that Hack was the only one who went on loan. Again, Hack is a he's a number eight. He's a box to box midfielder, and I guess that's the the one part of the field where they had a lot of depth. You know, they had Alex Ring, who was uh, for 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 a couple of seasons was was uh, you know universally you know considered to be one of the top uh, defensive midfielders in the league. He uh, with the uh, with the ascension of James Sands in that role as a, as a number six, uh, Alex Ring moved further up the field, and now is currently playing uh, left wing for the club. Uh, so I guess there's a lot of depth in that in that position, and they just felt that at, at Hack's age, it was more important for him to get uh, to get minutes and to get consistent playing time because he's been uh, with the team for, for for more than a year, and I think that's the thing that um, where Tavon Gray. Uh, you know, not seeing any minutes with the team, but being on the on the team sheet for a few games because he's one of the center back uh, depth options. 
you know, he's only been with the team for a few months, and uh, and I guess that's why they wanted to keep him around and give him some more time with the first team, whereas Hack had been training with the first team for, for an extended period of time, and now it was time to get the guy minutes. Do you see New York City FC getting a, a, a USL Championship Club or a USL League One Club? Because we know David Villa has that uh, that ownership group for Queensboro FC. And I think it's going to be ready for next year. Are they talking to each other to make it into a, a NYCFC, you know, um, minor league club, or is NYCFC going to do one on their own? The, well, the, to answer the first question, I don't get the impression that uh, that Queensboro FC is going to be an NYCFC affiliate. Um, the, the word on the street is that uh, when when Villa left uh, the club, he, he things didn't end as, as well as he wanted to. I think to, to some extent he was a little bit pushed out of out of out of NYCFC. I think he had hoped that he would be able to uh, to stick around and have some sort of connection to the club. And, uh, and that didn't work out. So I think uh, Queensboro is, a, is an independent property. And even when pressed with this question in the beginning of the year, David Lee kind of brushed it off and said something to, to the effect of, no, they're really not paying it, that NYCFC isn't really paying too much attention to, uh, to Queensboro FC. That seems to be a mistake when you have a, you know, a USL club playing in your backyard. But let's see what happens. Um, Claudia Reyna had said from the beginning and this is going back six years ago, that the academy team that was the team of Joe Scali, Gio Arena, uh, James Sands, and Justin Hack, once they aged out of the academy, they would become the USL squad. They would basically be, once they, they aged out of the academy at U19 and were playing U23, they would become the uh, USL squad. I think that was that was a hope because they thought that the stadium would be would be more in line, and they, they would have more progress in the stadium. I didn't think they want they don't want the USL squad playing out of St. John's, where the current academy plays out of. So they uh, they put that on hold. Uh, it does force a lot of a lot of issues because now you have players playing in Hartford. You know, Danny Bedoya, who's a NYCFC player in 2019, he ended up going to Hartford for a little bit and, and playing, getting some time there. Great for the player, but again, you have no control over their. their um, what type of system they're playing? You have no control over um, over the minutes. You're basically just saying, "Hey, here, you know, here's a player. You know, put him on loan and let's uh, let's hope for the best." Uh, and I think a USL squad would, would would be a lot more beneficial to the team, especially when you have play you know so many quality depth players in their uh, in their academy that you'd like to get signed. They had three or four players uh, during the uh, during the preseason playing with them that probably could have. Uh, could easily be signed to USL contracts right now. This is Michael Ander, Blue City Radio. Covers everything and anything New York City FC. Michael, thank you for your time. Have a good evening. I'll talk to you soon. Take care, my friend. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. Nice talking to you. And now I'm joined by another good friend of mine who has covered DC United for a long time, formerly with United Mania, uh, the podcast, as well as the former blog itself a long time ago. But he still peeks around the corner. At Audi Field, my good friend Chris Webb, uh, Webby, this is it. It's officially happened. The Ben Olsen era of managing is over. What did you think about the uh, 
the way it ended? Was it the way you thought it would be, or did you think you'd get the full year and then it'd be over? Daniel, good to talk to you again. Uh, it's been quite some time. Uh, I got mixed emotions on this because I've been openly advocating Ben being let go for quite some time because I just felt like the team had lost it or just wasn't tuning in to whatever message Ben was putting forth. I mean, you just you saw a ton of just really dour, defensive-minded performances. He set up his team in a really strong defensive way with, with you know, an attack that was bereft of ideas because they spent so much time defending. And it just, you know, Daniel, you know this, being, uh, you know, into the league since the beginning. D.C. United has always been associated with an attacking team. And in the past couple of years, with, with a few exceptions, Wayne Rooney coming in in 2018 and, you know, uh, uh, a 10 or 12 game run at the end of 2016, notwithstanding, most of Ben Olsen's tenure has been just, it's been tough to watch as a United fan. And like I said, I have mixed emotions because, Ben is and was a class act. Um, he was perfectly gracious to me at, at, at every turn. Like, like I said, I, I dealt with Ben for pretty much his, almost his entire career. I started covering the team in 2003. Uh, that ended in 2016. So I was there for most of his playing career and pretty much you know, 75% of his coaching career. And it's it, it, it's a sad day for DC United because Ben Olsen has spent more than half of his life associated with DC United either as a player or as a coach, and I'm sure that that affects anybody. And anybody who talks to Ben Olsen, anybody who knows Ben Olsen, anybody with a vested interest in DC United will tell you that this was not an easy decision because Ben Olsen is DC United. Absolutely agree with you. You can tell he had the heart on his sleeve. You can tell that every yes. single time he went out there uh, as a manager, he did it like he did it as a player. He did it for the club because the club he played for, he played with his heart. But he managed them with his heart. He tried his best. And even I said um, when Wayne Rooney came over to join Paul Ariola and Luciano Acosta – uh, and, of course, um, Bill Hamid, I said to people, now you're going to see the D.C. United of old. Now you're going to see what Ben Olsen can have when you have these players all together and just become a well-oiled machine. And unfortunately for you and everyone else following D.C. United, even for Ben, that was gone when Wayne Rooney uh, had to leave. Acosta no longer on the club. Now you have Ariola who's out for the year with a preseason injury. Um, yep. It's a situation where, like you said, he ran out of ideas. And the truth is, is that sometimes a manager maybe doesn't do well with the X's and the O's, but you can tell that he oozed out the passion for the black and red. Yep. You knew that. Whenever he stood in his technical area, how he wanted the ball to be played. 
Yeah, uh, you felt that, but as I spoke to earlier, it just it seemed like the message just wasn't getting through to the current crop. And and, and Daniel, you mentioned the Wayne Rooney, Lucho Acosta, Paul Ariel. You got to remember that that 14 game stretch went in 2018 when the and it all it all started uh, the day Audi Field opened when that was Wayne Rooney's debut. Uh, there were a half a dozen players on D.C. United from that point towards the end of the season that were having career years. Russell Knauss, Yamil Assad, uh, Lucho, um, Paul Areola, even uh, their backup striker, uh, I forget, Jamaican kid, I, I forget his name now. He had, he had scored 10 goals. I mean, how many backup strikers in MLS have 10 goals during the season? So, I mean, everything was flowing for D.C., and then it all slowly started falling apart in 2019, got off to a good start, but at the beginning of 2000, literally at the start of 2019, Mucho Acosta had his dream move to PSG yanked out from under him. There's speculation that, that Dave Casper's the one who pulled the rug on this. There's speculation that PSG pulled it. Whoever did it, it, it affected Lucho tremendously. He wasn't the same, and that, that special combination that Lucharoo combination of Acosta uh, and Rooney just did not keep going. And I think that was a huge factor in Wayne Rooney leaving. I, I don't believe for a second that his wife was homesick, and that's the reason why he went back. I think there were other reasons. I don't have any proof for that. That's just my personal opinion. I think, I think Wayne saw the, the writing on the wall here. Uh, he saw – all those players who were having, you know, they made a number of changes in 2019. Yumil Asad was gone. Um, a couple of other players left the team, and they, they were a lot thinner than they were in 2018 with, with the, all that quality depth. And it started showing itself out. And then when Wayne made the announcement, that's when it really dropped off precipitously. DC still made the playoffs, but they, they, just, they just weren't a threat. And then going into this season, this season's been an abject disaster from the beginning and yes they've got a lot of injured players but you know most of those players were fringe players in the starting 11 and depth counts you know that uh daniel mls is one of these leagues where for the most part it, it's it's uh you know everybody anybody can beat anybody on any any given day this is you know mls is not the same as you know the premier league or bundesliga Serie A, league all those all those top leagues where they're all top heavy with teams that you know are going to compete for the championship. And then there are teams at the bottom who are competing for relegation. And then all those teams that are kind of just stuck in the middle, they're not going to go anywhere. MLS, you know, they, they've got, they've got their share of really, really good teams, but for the most part, uh, there's no one dominant team. And I think to, to kind of sum up the Ben Olsen era, um, he was hamstrung for many years, as you know, by uh, a very small budget because they, they were playing RFK for years. It took forever to get the stadium built. Now, when they got the stadium built, they started to open up the purse strings. And, you know, they, they paid a lot of money for Wayne Rooney. They gave DP contracts to Acosta and Areola. Uh, they brought in Edson Flores from Peru in the offseason on a DP contract. So far, that has not panned out. The injuries uh, – you know, players not performing up to par, and then just the simple mentality. And, Daniel, I know you don't follow D.C. as closely as I do, but just, you know, I knew within the first five minutes of the game how games were going to turn out just by the way they were setting up. 
you know, after kickoff, the team would drop back into a low block. And, you know, MLS, like I said, is a, is a league strife with parity. Anybody can beat anybody. I see no reason why Ben Olsen couldn't construct some sort of tactical approach to where he puts, not unlike what uh, New York Red Bull had done for years, just apply high pressure to create turnovers and take the stress off the defense on the back end. But, you know, they were constantly under pressure, just giving up mounds of possession to the opposition. And it just, it, it, it all came to a head and, and it was time. And Ben was so diplomatic about it, um, and which is one of the great qualities about Ben Olsen. And one of the things that's going to be missed, he's still going to be in and around the club in some capacity, but um, yeah, he's just going to be missed. But it, it, the time was long coming for this move to happen. And I, I think within the next 12 months, DC United will be a better club a better organization for, for making this move unfortunately sad to say again because he's such a quality guy no he really is um look the rivalry aside obviously we can go back and forth about the rivalry all day between your club and my club but the truth of the matter is, is that if you don't recognize uh the man that has done you know a good amount of things for dc at the time we all we always talk about marco echeverry Jaime Moreno, Raul Diaz Arce, John Harks, Jeff Agus, Causey, um, you know, Hamid, Ramondo. We can talk about all these wonderful players for days and days and days. But, you know, to see what Ben Olsen has done, um, you know, as a player and a manager for this club. I mean, let's be honest. He did take up the mantle of Mr. DC United. Yeah, he sure did. Um, and there's not there's not much remaining from the old days of DC United. Ben was pretty much that Ben and Dave Casper, uh, the general manager, are pretty much the only guys left from DC United's heyday in terms of winning championships and collecting trophies. You know that after I, I want to say in 2014, I believe. Uh, DC United, they, they let a lot of their front office people go who are who are part of the early success of DC United, and it's just it's it's a different club right now, almost wholly and entirely different than what it was pre. Let's say, and we'll, let's use the David Beckham designated player rule, 2007, as the dividing line, because to me that's the definitive move that has moved MLS into another stratosphere in terms of worldwide attention. And within the last five or six years, Daniel, you'll agree. I mean, MLS has taken a quantum leap in terms of the quality of DPs they brought in, the number of DPs you can bring in, you know, GAM, TAM, all these different machinations to make yourselves better teams. DC United just simply has fallen behind the rest of MLS in that regard. And, and part of that was due to the fact that they were, they had the budgetary restrictions with, also playing in a money pit RFK. That's loosened up now, but DC United needs to get back to that to compete with the teams that are, are, are doing it right, you know, in MLS these days, you know, the Seattle Sounders, LAFC, uh, you know, and we're, we're watching sort of in a, in a smaller sample size what's happening with Atlanta United right now. They came out of the gate, boom, right away. All these DP players within two years have won MLS Cup. 
and now they're not they're they're right there with United. They just they just clubbed United last weekend at at Audi Field, but they're not they're not the same team that they were just a year and a half ago. And it's because all those DP players have gone in and out of the lineup, and they have not been able to bring those play you know those quality players back. And you know Tata Martino leaving was a big factor as well. So DC United's got a lot of catching up to do. And uh, Daniel, I promise I won't bring up the hat trick that Ben Olsen dropped on on the Metro Stars, you know, a couple of years ago. So. It's all right. Yeah. All right. So it's I all right, Webby. That. It's all right. Feel safe. Yeah. No, you're fine. You're fine. I won't mention uh, the hat trick that uh, Bradley Wright Phillips scored on you guys in the last minute of the match uh, that wonderful Sunday afternoon, but that's okay. Um, well, that was you know, a draw. We, you know, it may be a draw. It, draw. it may be a draw, but we <laughs> took two points away from you guys. That's a lot worse because hey. you had to lead on us three different times. Uh, <laughs> hey, let, me, let me just say about Bradley Wright Phillips, not a handsome man. Bradley, right, Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's between you and him. I I won't go there. <laughs> but um, if I can just say this, um, who do you think should be the next head coach for DC United? Now, I mean, there's a certain somebody who is currently in New England right now. Um, mm-hmm. that maybe if you pry him away from the original head coach of this club, who's currently with New England, would you say Richie Williams would be a candidate to be the head coach? Because let's be honest, um, he is also a D.C. United legend at the same time. Uh, Richie Williams, I think, would make an excellent choice. Uh, the rumors uh, or the suggestion of Jill Ellis being the next head coach yeah. for D.C. United. How would you feel about that? Uh, it, to see Jill Ellis becoming the first female head coach in, in MLS. I'm not opposed to the idea because uh, it's got to start somewhere. Somebody somewhere is going to have to make that move to do it. Jill Ellis, I think, was she did fantastically well with the national team. I think it was a little bit of a slow start with her, but then then it really came on like gangbusters. There's uh, other guys who are under consideration are also uh, the rumors are Jason Christ, former uh, Schalke manager and the former U S international David Bogner is also being uh, is a name that's being thrown out there as well as Richie Williams. I think Richie Williams thing is, is probably a pass. I, I just, you know, if Richie Williams has been an assistant coach for almost, 12, 13 years now, and he still hasn't really gotten a head job in this league. And it's just one of those things like, well, if he hasn't gotten one by now, you know, why would they start doing that now? I mean, I, I'm probably, he's probably at the bottom of that list for people. Um, so they, they've got, they've got an interesting choice ahead of them because, I, I think they're going to need to spend some money to get a coach in here. Um, DC United has not had that many coaches throughout their history. I want to say it's been seven, six or seven coaches total in 26 years, which if you look across the, you know, the expanse of MLS, that's, that's a modern day miracle. <laughs> you know, with, uh, you know, I think sporting Kansas city is probably the other 
team that's had a few numbers because now, you know, Peter Vermees has been there 11 or 12 years now. So um, that's an interesting list of character or, or, or candidates to start with. Jill Ellis would really be, that would be eye-opening. That would be news-making. Um, I just don't know if DC United is ambitious enough to make that move. Uh, that's just my personal opinion, but we, I guess we will see. This will probably most likely happen during the offseason. Uh, I'm sure they're, they're floating names out right now and taking calls right now, but, uh, you know, Chad Ashton's going to take the team through the, the rest of the year. Um, and I, I think this, you know, this, this will start building some, some momentum probably about a month from now when the season ends because the, the questions are going to come basically every day from Stephen Goff and Pablo, Pablo Morrow, the guys who, who covered DC United on a regular basis. So you know, this isn't going anywhere until uh, we, we get a resolution on this. What do you think about the kids that have been brought up through the Loudoun United uh, USL Championship Club? How have they handled uh, the situation, of course, with all the injuries that the club's been handling? And uh, Federico Higuain, got his request for a trade to uh, play with his brother down in Inter-Miami. If there's, if there's one thing that DC United has always done, they've never stood in anybody's way to move on, which is a good thing. And in some, some respects is a bad thing, a good thing because, you know, Federico Iguin going to play with his brother, Gonzalo, obviously down there, a uh, perfect match. You know, they allowed Wayne Rooney to leave his contract early. When I, I personally thought DC United should have held firm and, and gotten a transfer fee for him. That's me. But DC United was doing what DC United kind of always does, which is, is, you know, hey, we'll take care of you. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll do that. So, but that, that's for another show, Daniel. Um, hmm. As far as the young kids go, um, yeah, three players in particular, Kevin Paredes, midfielder, uh, Griffin Yao, midfielder, and actually they're all midfielders, and Moses Nyman. Uh, have seen substantial minutes in recent weeks. Um, <laughs> there isn't one of those three that's over 17 years old, which is amazing. And then Moses Nyman is, is a central midfielder, defensive midfielder at 16. This is one player that I think people need to pay attention to. He's, he's, he's a little bit on the smallest side right now, not surprising because he's still only 16 years old. But from a, from a, tactical stand, from a technical standpoint, and from sort of an understanding game flow standpoint, he is well beyond his years, well beyond his years. And this guy could be a special player, and I wouldn't be surprised if he sold before he's 18 years old to a, a foreign, uh, to a team in Europe. I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Kevin Paredes, uh, exciting, young, attacking, outside midfielder got some good chops on the ball. He's really good with the ball at his feet. Griffin Yao is just probably a poor man's Paul Areola will run you into the ground on both ends of the field. Um, scored a great goal against Toronto. Everybody's seen that one, the, the, the game-tying goal in, in stoppage time uh, with his left foot. Um, he's he's going to be one to grow. He basically is – Paul, Paul Ariola is his mentor, and he, he models his game after him, not a bad person to emulate. Um, so I think moving forward, those are certainly bright spots for D.C. United because they had not been utilizing 
their homegrown players in recent years, and that's that's another sticking point that I've always had with Ben is that he's always defaulted to veteran players instead of giving younger, you know, more talented, you know, less experienced players time. And he was sort of forced into that this year with the number of injuries that the team has has come up against, particularly in midfield because they they you know they're down to their like fourth string. They were down to their fourth strings uh, defensive midfielder um, on the depth chart, which is Nyman, um, because of the injuries to uh, Abu and the injuries to Felipe. Uh, so they're they're certainly a bright part of DC United's future. They've also got a couple of other kids in the academy, and and, and finally, and I, I'd like to say this: finally, DC United has ditched the pay-to-play model. For their academy, and they are now fully vested, and uh, you know players can play for free, just like pretty much everybody in MLS right now. That had to happen, and for them, for DC United to put the money down to do that, um, to me speaks volumes about what their intentions are in the future. They just need to fix the first team roster now, which is a which is a complete disaster. They've got got a number of good players, but the the roster is wholly inept. I think in combination, you've got a lot of players who are playing well below their standard. And, uh, you know, Dan, you'll, you know, I've, I've said this a million times through various conversations over the years, soccer at this level, at the professional level is almost more mental than physical. The way you approach games, the way you attack games, it means everything. And, you know, when DC United had that home game against NYCFC about three or four weeks ago, they held them to a 0-0 draw. They were outshot like 31 to nothing. I mean, DC United didn't have a single shot. Mm-hmm. Who in their right mind, who in their right mind as a soccer fan wants to see the home team sitting back in a bunker just under assault for 90 minutes and barely string three passes across midfield? There's nobody in the world who wants to see that. And, and, a, and a number of players spoke out about that, saying, we can't continue to set up this way. Yubil Assad was one of those. O'Neill Fisher was another player. And it, not coincidentally, both players were benched on the, on the very next game after speaking out about that. But, that again, that speaks to sort of the tactics that, that Ben was employing and, and sort of the message lost that I was talking about earlier how it, there's a real disconnect between what the players, I think, want to do and what they were being asked to do. You know, these guys are human. Nobody wants to sit back and defend for 90 minutes, Daniel. And fans certainly don't want to watch it. <laughs> I know I don't. Well, uh, I've lost a lot of hours this season. I've <laughs> lost a lot of hours this season watching a very, very bad D.C. United struggle through games. I don't blame you at all, Webby. I don't blame you at all. As always, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I'd like to have you on more times as much as I can because, you know, I've got, there's some good people I, I talk to that knows DC United, but you'll always be the number one. So uh, thank well, you thank very you, much, you. Webby. I appreciate that. You're welcome. No problem hey, we got, at all. We got thank some you, national sir. team games. Don't, we got some national team games coming up, and I, I believe in November. I am available for I that as well. You know, I'm in. I'm in tune for that. I'm really looking forward to all these young U.S. players, the ones who are playing in Europe, getting together. Um, I'm not. I'm not going overboard with it, if you don't mind talking about this for a minute, because 
Let's go um, for it. While, yes, it, it, it's, it's fantastic that we've got 10 players on Champions League, you know, group play rosters oh, yeah. right now. That's, oh, yeah. that's perfect. It's, it's, it's unprecedented. But you got to remember, and let's take, let's take 20, you know, World Cup qualifying in 2016. There were a lot of good players on the United States team. They just did not play well together. They didn't mess well together. And these kids are going to have to learn to play World Cup qualifiers, you know, in Guatemala, in Honduras, in Mexico, and be effective. And they're going to have to do it right away because, you know, the bar was set pretty low with us not qualifying for the last World Cup. And I think people are really expecting the U.S. to go out and pound teams right now. It's going to take some time for these guys to get in together. It's going to take time for Greg Berhalter to figure out combinations because you can't just can't throw out there an all under 21 superstar team. You got to throw in some veterans here and there, you know, who who've uh-huh. been through the wars. Um, people don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that Michael Bradley's part of the team. They don't want to hear that Josie out the door is part of the team. But those are guys who are glue. Those are guys who have been through the wars. And they have to be on these teams, not necessarily starting, but they have to be on these teams to impart their knowledge to these kids who have never been in this situation. And, and granted, you know, let, let's, give, let's give all due credit where credit is due. They're fantastic players. Gio Reyna, Christian Pulisic, you know, Tyler Adams, they're doing fantastically well for their club teams. Club teams and national teams are two different animals, and you've got to figure out that balance. But I am looking forward to it big time. Oh, so am I. So am I. I mean, to have Dest and De La Fuente playing with Lionel Messi, to have Weston McKinney playing with uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, Tyler Adams coming to his own over at Leipzig in Germany, Pulisic doing well. You know, he's coming back from an injury, of course, but he's going to do very well with Chelsea. Um, we're seeing now these young crop of players that have done well for themselves through the pipelines of MLS, through the pipelines of European mm-hmm. clubs. The next level is here, Webby. And you're right. You're absolutely right on this aspect. People won't like it, but you're going to have to bring over the Michael Bradleys, the Josie Altidores. Um, maybe you have a guest training, a guest guy to come over, like Clint Dempsey, who re- recently retired. Why not have him come over and, you know, pump up the players a little bit, tell them, you know, give them some stories about World Cup qualifying because it's not just what you do at home. It's how do you get a result on the road in this atmosphere that is known as CONCACAF because you know, you know this, I know this, all of our colleagues know this. When you go down to Central America and to the Caribbean, it is a different animal, a different animal. Not just because of the way that the stadiums are constructed, not just the atmospheres, but the high intensity of fighting for three points at the most impossible, improbable level that you need to get from those missions on the road. And, And you would have to think that, you know, because the way they got eliminated in 2016, the hubris that was involved with the team at the time, you know, where they, they thought they could literally just show up and win. You know, you know, these young guys, I think, are going to change the narrative for the U.S. moving forward in that regard. Because, you know, we, we all saw the, the look on Christian Pulisic's face as he was, he was sitting – 
you know, at the 50-yard line and going, I just, you know, I'm going to miss a World Cup because we thought we were too good to to come in here and and win. And and just you got to sort of bottle up those those feelings and and use it moving forward to say never again. We're, we are not going to let this happen again. And uh, we, we hope that the U.S. learns their lesson, that they take these matches seriously. Not that they didn't take them seriously before, but not get yourself into a position where, you know, you could possibly lose out on a World Cup because you're not taking care of the details. So, you know, I, I, think, we're, I think we're in a good spot. It's just going to take a little while to get these guys uh, acclimated into World Cup. And, yeah, and look, the whole COVID thing has not helped the situation at all. Um, the no. U.S. Is, is basically going to go an entire year without playing, uh, you know, a, a, an organized match. And it's just, it's, it's horrible that this is happening, but it's happening to everybody. So there's no real, uh, there's no real advantage for anybody. But it's just frustrating that this happened at this time. But, again, at the same time, the opportunity, the window opened for all these young players to really move forward in their club situations, which they have to their credit. So, um, you know, that, that's another thing to, to look forward to. It really is. Webby, as always, thank you for being on the show. I always appreciate it, and I'll have you back on as soon as I can. You have a good evening. Take care. For you and your family, please remain vigilant, strong, and be safe through this entire pandemic. And uh, I'll let you know when I get back down there, okay? Same to you and yours, Daniel, as well. Always good to hear from you. Thank you very much, and uh, we will talk soon. We will. Thank you very much, Chris. See you, buddy. See you later. Chris Webb, United Mania, formerly United Mania website, formerly United Mania podcast. Uh, but still aficionado of DC United, uh, do not – I trust – I do not uh, doubt the man's uh, acumen. Very smart, very knowledgeable, knows what he's talking about, anything and everything, DC United. Um, as we move on, uh, New York Red Bulls, uh, kind of a mixed bag uh, during the week. A midweek loss to Inter Miami on a Gonzalo Higuain free kick, who just was absolutely blasting it right around the wall and smashes it off the inside of the far post, beating David Jensen in a match where it was a solid first half. Red Bulls were on the front foot. Nothing happened. They couldn't convert, but they were playing very strong. They were playing very well. They get the opening goal from Omir Fernandez. And then after like two, three minutes later, they get uh, buried uh, by the ball on an equalizer by Pellegrini. And then, of course, later in the second half, late in the second half, it all went to pieces from the Gonzalo Higuain free kick. And now this is what I'm saying about the New York Red Bulls, where I still believe while they're still trying to play their own way, the truth is that they are um, rebuilding. They are rebuilding. They're using, of course – Red Bull 2 players, uh, this whole pandemic situation has hampered them a bit. Of course, no fans inside Red Bull Arena. Some stadiums are now fans are being allowed to come back in. We all know about Orlando City uh, fans being allowed back inside Explorer Stadium, but only a limited capacity. Um, but 
once again, they switched off. Ooh, excuse me. One second. They switched off. I still believe – excuse me for one second, I believe. Uh, no. Um, you know, while they switched off, you still see them a bit green around the edges, still a bit young. There is Daniel Royer. There is Ryan Mera. There is Kaku. There's still Aaron Long, Tim Parker, Amro Tarek. But still green around the edges. And if you continue to be like this, if you continue to be like this, you might lose more games. Well, apparently, those players felt bad, which they should feel bad because you're on the front foot. And then you got naive thinking they're, they're not going to equalize here, and then boom, they do. And then a class of brilliance from Gonzalo Higuain and the Red Bulls fall to Inter-Miami, two goals to one. And that would be the end of that on that night. Traveling down to Atlanta, Georgia in a building they have not lost in the regular season. 4-0 and after the 1-0 victory as Caden Clark signed on the same day he starts and scores his first MLS goal, the triple S. Signed, started, scores. All on the same day. A corner from Sean Davis along the near side. Delivered into the middle of the area of Atlanta. It's headed back. And then who's inside the top of the area but Caden Clark and a fantastic volley that beat Brad Guzan clean, claimed either offsides or obstruction, not so. VAR took the check. They said it was good. I'll get to that in a little bit in a moment later. But then you saw after a, a good opening two, three minutes by the Red Bulls, then they were just not doing well enough in the first half. But they were playing well defensively, just not doing well offensively. After the goal was scored, they switched on. They attacked. They berated. They gave Atlanta a run for their money. Drew Yearwood had to hit the post and out as a substitute. And then all of a sudden, Atlanta tried to get something. Nothing was working for them until the last moments in second half stoppage time. Fantastic body-blocking save by Ryan Mera. And even though there was a rebound, the shot was deflected. And wide, wide of the near post. Final whistle blows. Atlanta United falls once again to the New York Red Bulls. It doesn't matter if it's at Red Bull Arena. It does not matter if it's at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It doesn't even matter if it's at the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex at the Walt Disney World Resort. Atlanta United right now. In 10 matches in all competitions. Cannot beat the New York Red Bulls. Except for. When Bradley Wright Phillips. Leveled the match at one. And then VAR took the ball away. Took the goal away. Because they claimed obstruction. On Alex Muil 
And if you really think about it in the playoff setting, if VAR does not take away, in my opinion and in my mind, a legitimate goal by Bradley Wright Phillips, Atlanta United would have had another mental breakdown because, oh my God, the Red Bull scored on us. When Bradley Wright Phillips scored that goal, you knew right away that Atlanta United was down. They were like, great, here we go again. If not for the league and not for VAR to say, well, we see obstruction by Alex Muil, take the goal away. And I'll be clear and honest with everyone. Watching the goal that happened for Caden Clark. Caden Clark's goal, if you want to claim that's more of, a, of an obstruction than BWP's goal, then let's be honest, then Atlanta United should never have gone to the MLS Cup final because they cannot win at Red Bull Arena. And the truth is, Atlanta has it, you know, they're screwed mentally when they face the New York Red Bulls. The only time they beat the Red Bulls was when VAR assisted them in wiping off Bradley Wright Phillips' goal. Was Caden Clark's opportunity more obstruction than BWB's playoff goal? Yes. I will admit to that. But once again, when you see Daniel Royer stepping up, stepping forward, and avoiding the ball, and trying not to be in an offside position, trying to be, okay, passive offside, but not putting himself into, into the trajectory of the ball or the, the way of the ball coming towards him so he can go inside the net. You want to say that's, saying that's a good goal? You got it. But once again, it is a situation where Atlanta United still cannot, still cannot beat this New York Red Bull side, even though the playoff match was the only win for Atlanta United in the first leg of the Eastern Conference Finals back in 2018. This New York Red Bull side. It dominate against Atlanta United. It is in their heads, no matter who wears the five stripes. It is in their heads, period. And all you can say, all you can say, perfectly plain and simple, is that this club cannot do it. Fantastic volley by Caden Clark. Bombs it into the back of the net. And the Red Bulls end the entire match, ending a two-match losing streak and getting three points once again against Atlanta United in the regular season. The domination continues on in the regular season. It has been absolutely fantastic to watch. And so now the next couple of matches, they will be uh, on the road against Toronto FC in midweek action. And then they come back home to take on Orlando City at Red Bull Arena. So I have to wait and see what's going to happen there. It should be exciting. 
It should be a lot of fun, and we'll have to wait and see how this whole situation will go. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this will do it for tonight's show. I want to thank my guests, the head coach and sporting director of Sporting Kansas City, Peter Vermees. I want to thank Michael Ander for the recording of this interview and my good friend Chris Webb talking about Ben Olsen saying goodbye to the club at D.C. United. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. For you NPSL fans, join me this coming Friday night as we will talk to the brand new kids on the block as the NPSL welcomes new expansion sides to the league. And then next week, next Monday, Rob Stone of Fox Sports will join me to talk about his career broadcasting soccer in the United States and MLS through ESPN and Fox Sports. Once again, my name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you very much for listening to me tonight. And as always, please enjoy your football. Thank you. Take care. So long. Have a good night. And bye-bye for now, everybody. Good night, everybody.